Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. It's uh, lovely to have you with us today as we come to worship the Lord. And this has been a week of real, real turmoil in our nation. Um, uh, I should probably say another week of real turmoil in our nation. And um, it just shows you that you can't really assume on very much, and particularly at the moment when it comes to who is in charge, who is your leader, you can't be sure of very much at all, and who would want to predict who will be the Prime Minister by this time next week. But we, we're grateful that as we come together like this, we actually come to reflect on the things that are sure and are certain, and that in fact there is a ruler over all who you can be sure will still be the ruler tomorrow, the day after, and indeed for all eternity. We've been learning in junior church about King Saul, the king whom the people wanted to have, someone who was impressive, head and shoulders above everyone else, someone who was mighty in battle. And if you're going to be in junior church today, you're going to be learning that he was someone who ultimately was rejected by God because he didn't really know God. He didn't trust God. He didn't listen to God. It was a very unstable and uncertain time for Israel, but even that instability was to point them forward, to point them to another, to look for the king whom God would send that would rule and reign forever. We have seen him we have had him revealed to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls us to worship the Lord. Listen to these words from Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Let me take a moment to mention a couple of other things. Um, we're really pleased to have uh, Andy Holt with us today. He's going to be preaching to us from God's Word, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come up and to, to minister to us. Uh, let me invite Julia to come and to bring us the reading for this morning. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through to chapter 12, verse 14. So that's Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 through to chapter 12, verse 14. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labour and are heavily, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck grain, pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Do take your seats. And turn back in your Bibles to that passage that Julius just read for us, uh, Matthew, uh, and the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12. It'll be really useful for our time together if that's in front of you as we study it together. As Duncan said, my name's Andy, and it's a great privilege uh, to be with you this morning and to be preaching for you. Um, I serve as a pastor in training uh, with a church down in Dundee, um, but I have the very great privilege of having married into the congregation here, uh, being married to Helena, um, and so it's a great delight for us to be with you uh, this weekend. Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, we thank you that your promises are steadfast and sure, that we can be confident of placing our lives on your word, of depending on all that you have said. And so we pray that as we come to consider these words this morning, not just the words of a man, but your words about your son, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your spirit, that we might receive all that you have for us through your word. And we pray that you will be at work in our hearts by it. Help us, we pray, to pay attention and to be not only listeners to your word, but doers of all that it calls us to. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would your life be better or worse if you had just a little more sleep? It's quite a dangerous thing for a preacher to ask on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Many of you have been looking forward all morning to these next 30 minutes or so when you can catch up on a few more minutes of sleep. We all know, don't we, that we desperately need sleep. 
And yet it's one of the great mysteries of science. Those studies have done a lot to uncover what happens in our brains and in our bodies as we sleep. Scientists still struggle to give a coherent answer to the question, why do we sleep? Presumably those same scientists have lost countless hours of sleep as they've searched for the answers to these questions. And yet the Healthy Sleep Project at Harvard Medical School suggests that the answer to the question is probably never to be known. It's probably an unanswerable question. Why do we sleep when so many different creatures and animals in the world don't sleep in the same way we do and yet receive the same benefits? We don't know why we sleep, and yet we all know, don't we, that we need to. We desperately need to. Lacking sleep makes us grumpy. It makes us lack in energy. It makes us less able to think clearly and coherently. It makes us prone to making all kinds of mistakes and generally to be unpleasant to be around. But even if we're getting all the sleep that we could need, we know, don't we, that going on holiday does us the world of goods. Our bodies desperately need sleep, but in just the same way, our souls need rests. I wonder if your experience is like mine. We go through life constantly telling ourselves that these next couple of months, they're really a bit too busy, but after those couple of months are out, I'm looking forward to a quieter spell. And yet it never comes, does it? We go through life from crisis to crisis, always confident that the rest that we long for is coming. And yet it's always just over the horizon. Don't we all long for a rest that always just seems to elude our grasp? Sometimes it's because of external pressures and responsibilities that we have that keep us from finding this rest that we know we need. The demands of young children, or perhaps older ones too. The rigors of work and all the responsibilities there. Trying our best to look after aging parents or spouses. Insomnia, illness, all these external factors that keep us from resting as we would long to. But even without any of those, we know, don't we, we have a deep restlessness that comes from within. Sometimes it's the restlessness, like this past week of looking at national events, constantly refreshing the news to see, do we still have a prime minister? Is there any indication of who the next one will be? But I think most of us find it hardest of all situations. We find it hardest to rest when we've had a fight with someone we love the restlessness of strife and tension, lying awake wondering, how could I have said that to them? Why do I keep on doing those things? Well, true rest is not just a well-slept body. It goes beyond even a peaceful state of mind. True rest is a state of the soul, of our entire being. And so I want us to consider the question this morning, where will we find true rest in a world of restlessness? And in this section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 
this gospel writer would show us that Jesus is the one who can give us true, real, lasting rest. So I want us in our time together to consider three questions that Matthew would have us ask and that he gives us the answers to. Three questions. First of all, how do we get it? How do we get this rest? Where do we find rest in a restless world? We're bombarded with all kinds of answers and solutions, aren't we? Come to our holiday resorts, they say. It's the most peaceful around. Take up this new hobby and relieve all your stresses. Spend 10 minutes a day thinking about nothing and find some inner peace. And as much as all of these things, I'm sure, have real benefits for them, do you see in our passage, Jesus has a much simpler offer. Not a place that you have to go to, not an activity that you have to begin, not a skill that you have to master. How will you get rest? Well, look there in chapter 11 and verse 28. Jesus says, I will give it to you. All you have to do is come to Jesus and receive it. This is his invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's his invitation to anyone who is laboring and toiling to find rest. His invitation to those who are so burned out, so weighed down by life, that we just feel burdened. Jesus knows the state of our souls. Do you hear his care and compassion as he delivers this invitation to us? He's not angry at us for being restless. He's not disappointed in us for longing and for searching. He just holds out this simple and delightful offer. Come, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, he is gentle and lowly in heart. He's not fiery and aloof. He's not impatient and stern, but gentle and lowly, always willing to give rest to the weary. He's come down to our level, into our world, not to crack a whip, but to give to our souls rest. When I was a student, we had to clear out of our rooms for the holidays. And after my first term at university, I was going home for Christmas on the train. And being a student, and perhaps being Aberdonian, I thought there's no way that I'm going to pay for a taxi to get to the station. I'll just walk. And so there I was with all my stuff, setting out to catch the train. It was just over a mile, and that hadn't seemed like very far the last couple of times I'd walked it. But for some reason, I thought that I should go home with two guitars, with all of my clothes to be washed, and with all the books and notes from a semester of study so that I could catch up a bit over the holidays. And so there I was carrying, as best as I could, two guitars, all my clothes, and a whole semester's worth of books and notes. A mile to the train station was ambitious. 
Well, for the first few hundred meters, it was absolutely fine. I could swap all my bags around and keep going. But the further I walked, the more I could tell I wasn't going to make it. But I kept struggling on. The bags and the cases getting heavier and heavier. And eventually, there was only a few hundred meters to go. I'd turned the final corner. I could see the train station ahead. But I was never going to make it. I was having to put the bags down now every two or three paces and stop for a minute's rest before I could heave them off again. And all the while, others rushing past in a rush to get to their trains. But then, picking up one of the handles of the biggest, heaviest case, a kindly stranger came alongside and said, come on, we can do it together. And so the two of us together hauled and heaved my luggage all the way to the station. With all that burden, I needed someone else to come alongside me and help me with all I had to carry. Is that like what Jesus offers us here in this passage? Well, not really, is it? Jesus doesn't come alongside of us and say, come on, come to me and I'll help you with your burdens. No, he says, come and I'll give you utter rest. You take my light burden upon yourself and I'm going to carry all your stuff for you. For Jesus to help me with my luggage, he'd have come alongside and he'd have said, here, let me take all of your stuff, everything that's weighing you down. Let me take that guitar and the other one. Let me take the case. Let me take your backpack. You just carry my stuff. I'm traveling light. Here's my wallet. It's all I've got. It's all you need to take. And let me take everything that's yours. Come to Jesus. Take up his way. Learn from him. And he says, find rest. Take his yoke upon you. That means harness yourself to him. Let him be your guide through life. Let yourself be shaped and molded into him. Make yourself his partner in life. Let him be your friend. And when you do that, Jesus says, you will find rest. Rest for your souls. The rest that you have always been seeking. Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're someone who's never experienced this offer and receipt of rest from Jesus. If you're wondering, what would it actually look like in my life to harness myself to Jesus, to receive this rest that he offers that just seems so far away from reality? Well, if you're wondering that, you are in the best room you could be in in Bankery this morning. There's loads of people who would love to talk to you about what that would look like for you, what this passage lived out in your life would mean. At the end of the service, go and talk to Duncan, chat to Mark, talk to any of the members of the church here, and they'd love to help you think about what it would look like for you to come to Jesus. It's an offer, a promise he makes for you today. You could receive this rest even before you go home and have your lunch. But Christians, this invitation from Jesus, it's for us too. 
Jesus is always inviting us, come to him. He never pushes us away. Whatever burdens you're carrying, come to Jesus, he says, and find rest once more. Now, you may be wondering as we get to the end of our first points, well, that's all very well concerning verses 28 to 30, but what about verses 25 to 27 that Julia read for us? Why does Jesus make this offer of rest just after announcing that no one can know God except if Jesus makes him known? Aren't these two totally different, two totally different issues, knowing God and finding rest? Well, hold that thought, and we will come back to it in part three. But here in these verses, Jesus makes this wonderful promise. He can give you rest. But I wonder if, like me, at the end of a week like this past week, haven't we had enough of leaders who make promises they can never keep? Haven't we had enough of people who are all talk and no substance? And so we turn to our second question, can Jesus really give the rest that he offers? Can he really give it? Chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Now, it might seem as we come to this chapter break in Matthew that we suddenly experience a change in what he's talking about, a shift from Jesus speaking so intimately and directly to us as readers at the end of chapter 11, and all of a sudden in chapter 12, we're looking at rather dull controversies about some Jewish legislation. But this is not a change of topic. Matthew, as he writes his gospel, he's put these two things side by side very carefully, very deliberately. Here in the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 14, Matthew tells us about two conflicts that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day about the Sabbath. Do you see, these aren't just conflicts about any old Old Testament law. This, the Sabbath, it's the law of rest, the fourth and longest of the Ten Commandments, in which God instructed His people that on the seventh day of the week, they were to do no work. It was a day of rest for everyone and everything in the land. And so one day, as Jesus and his disciples are taking a gentle stroll through the fields, and his disciples pick a few grains of corn and begin to eat them, the Pharisees saw this, and they know that this violates God's law. And so they say to Jesus, chapter 12, verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what it's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in response, refers to two Old Testament stories as uh, kind of case studies. He quotes another uh, passage from Hosea, and he makes two slightly strange statements. So what's going on here? It might seem to us, as we first read this passage, that what Jesus is doing is brushing away the over-scrupulous Pharisees and suggesting to them that it might be better to show mercy than to throw rocks. Leave aside the law, Jesus says, and let's show mercy instead. But you see, that's not actually what Jesus is saying. Jesus makes this actually a much bigger issue than that. 
Do you notice what he said about his disciples in verse 7? If you had known what this means, he says to the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty. No, he, he didn't say that, did he? Jesus said you would not have condemned the guiltless, the innocent. So here Jesus is not asking these Pharisees to show some mercy to his disciples who really have broken the law. He's telling these Pharisees that his disciples are truly and really innocent, even while they're breaking the Sabbath. So what's going on here? Well, we've got to go right back to the very beginning, right back to Genesis 2, which Duncan read for us earlier. In the account of Genesis 1, God's work of creation is beautifully, artfully, elegantly presented. There's a pattern and a rhythm to the account that perfectly reflects the order and the structure of God's wonderful universe. For six days, God creates and fills, and there was evening, and there was morning. Six days, six evenings, six mornings. But when it comes to day seven, when God has completed all his work, he rests. And do you see what's missing? There's no evening. There's no morning. God rests in his perfect world, and it's the ongoing state of his completed creation project. The seventh day of creation, it doesn't end and give way to the next day. God's rest is his dwelling with his people in total harmony forever living serenely, God and man, in the Garden of Eden. But in Genesis 3, human beings bring an end to this rest, to this bliss, by turning away from God, by re rebelling against his commands, by rejecting the way of life that God made for them, and by rejecting the God who himself gives rest. And so we, human beings, put ourselves into a world of death and of restlessness. And God, in his mercy, sent human beings away from his presence, out of the garden, out from his rest. But he promised to them that one day, through a human being, this state of rest, this seventh day, would be restored. And hundreds of years later, he gave to the nation of Israel the tabernacle, which then became the temple. God made one place in the whole world where he would dwell among his people. They couldn't enter his presence and experience his rest, but just a little glimpse of that presence, of that rest that he brings was there. And the temple as it was constructed was full of images of the rest that Eden offered, trees and pomegranates, a great curtain with a cherubim blocking the way, reminding them that they live east of Eden, outside of the presence, the rest of God. And God gave his people another sign, the Sabbath. On the seventh day of every week, they were to rest, a reminder every week that God made the world that they might know him, to remind them that every single day of their lives was supposed to be enjoyed in God's rest, in his presence. 
But because of our rebellion and sin, we live in a world of restlessness and death. But in the temple, in the temple there is no Sabbath. All the priests do their ordinary work. Isn't that what Jesus said in verse 5 in one of those case studies? The priests going about their work on the Sabbath are innocent. In the temple, there is no Sabbath because the temple is the true, the better rest that the Sabbath is a pointer to. So God gave to his people these two pictures, the temple, the Sabbath, two pictures and a promise. One day, one day a king is going to come and restore all that these pictures represent. And so do you see what happens centuries later? A man and his disciples are walking through the fields, picking corn and eating it. And what does Jesus say? They are innocents because something greater than the temple is here. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? The temple and the Sabbath, they were pointers, pictures, signposts to God's true rest. And now something greater is here. Now the reality has come. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Well, how can we be sure that he can keep that promise? How do we know that he can give us rest? Do you see what Matthew wants to show us in these verses? Coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is returning to dwelling with God himself. It is the world put right. It's the completion of all that we were made for. Jesus can give us true and lasting rest because he's greater than the temple. He's not just a signpost like the Sabbath was. He's the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath the one it was always pointing to. And so, you see, this isn't just a legal dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew wants us to see so carefully, so clearly, why Jesus really can give us rest. And so, our third question, we've seen, how do we get it? Jesus will give it to us. Can he really give it? Yes, he's greater than the temple. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one those things were all pointing to. So what will this rest look like? Verses 9 to 14, what will this rest look like? What does the rest that Jesus gives look like for us? We all like to rest in different ways, don't we? I have an uncle who worked in the city of London Every weekday was getting up early and getting home late. A long commute in on the train, frantic and busy in the high-paced world of the London financial district. And so weekends, finally, no more commuting, no more busyness, no more hectic life. Weekends were desperately needed for rest. And for many years, this uncle's ideal weekend went something like this. Leave work on a Friday, get home, sleep for two or three hours, and then get up, get in the car, and drive through the night up to the northwest highlands of Scotland. After driving all night, bag a few Munros on the Saturday, sleep in a tent, 
grab a few more on the Sunday, and then drive back down through the nights at home in time for a quick shower and hop on the train once again into work. Doesn't that sound like a restful weekend? Well, that was what worked for him. But for most of us, I guess, certainly for some of us, a couple of long books, a box set, a large pot of tea, those are the requirements for a restful day, aren't they? We all like to rest in different ways. So will the rest that Jesus offers, will it work for me if I don't like going into temples and sitting cross-legged and thinking about nothing? Will the rest that Jesus offers work? Well, in this second Sabbath controversy, Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand, a severe disability, not life-threatening, but certainly life-altering. And the Pharisees challenge Jesus, verse 10. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And once again, Jesus turns to a case study in verse 11. He says to them, wouldn't you help a sheep on the Sabbath? How much more a person? Matthew wants us to know much more than how he thinks we should interpret some Jewish legislation. Do you see what Jesus is telling these Pharisees? He's telling them, you already know what the Sabbath is all about. Even on God's holy day of rest, you would exert all the effort and all the toil of pulling a sheep out of a ditch because you know that you know the Sabbath isn't really about rest. It's really about restoration. It's returning things to how they should be. It's a signpost to the restoration of the true life, the true health of a relationship restored with God, of reconciliation to Him. And so do you see, verse 13, at Jesus' words, this man stretches out his withered hand and is restored to full health. Jesus shows in the span of one hand what one day he's going to do for the whole cosmos, to take it back to Eden and on to a far better Eden, a new creation, restores to life because God dwells with his people once again. That's the rest that Jesus offers for us, not just sitting quietly contemplating in a church or a temple, but reconciliation with the one who made us, the one who gives us all good things. So I wonder, is your life withered and broken? Are you feeling crippled this morning by the weight of your sin, by your mistakes, by not having lived the life you know you ought to have lived? While Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Let me give you rest. Let me take you back to how things were always supposed to be. Let me take all your burdens on me. I'll carry them to my cross. And let the weight of your sin and your punishment land on my shoulders instead. And you receive my rest. And so starting now, 
but not known fully in our lives until he returns and restores the whole of creation as he did that one withered hand. Let Jesus work this restoration, this true and lasting rest in your soul. So do you remember that question from part one? What were verses 25 to 27 all about? Why was Jesus talking about knowing God and then turning immediately to rest? We see now, don't we? What does it mean to have rest? Well, yes, it does mean restoration for us. It means restoration to all that we were supposed to be, but ultimately, restoration means reconciliation. It means we come to know God again. We're restored to dwell with him in his perfect creation once more. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. I'll bring you back to my Father. You can know him once again. No more rebellion against God. No more pushing back against his ways. No more war with our Creator. Just peace. Rest for our souls. So all this, this is what Jesus means when he says, come to me and I will give you rest. That's the invitation that Jesus holds out for all of us. The only way, he says, to true, to lasting, to real rest is to receive it from him. And he really can give it because he is the one who has been promised from long ago to come and to restore our rest. And the rest he brings, well, it's reconciliation with God. It's the restoration of all things and that will bring peace for our souls. Matthew wants us to see that there are only two ways to respond. The first is the response of the Pharisees, verse 14. They didn't want Jesus' rest. They went out, conspired against him, how to destroy him. To ignore Jesus' words, to reject his invitation of rest, is to rid him from our lives to destroy him out of our world. But we will never, ever find rest by destroying the only one who can give it to us. And so Matthew wants us to see so clearly, what's the other option? Come to Jesus. He will give you rest for your soul. The Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon lived a life with its fair share of hardships. He exhausted himself in his labor to tell the good news about who Jesus is, about this rest, this life that he offers. And in doing so, it took a serious toll on his health. But not content with just making this news known, he, in addition, gave himself unsparingly to setting up charities, societies, orphanages, schools, seeking to make, in some small measure, Victorian London in some small way into the restored world that Jesus has promised to bring, that one day Jesus will bring on a cosmic level. Well, Spurgeon's tireless service of Christ and of the gospel led to him often battling severe depression, forced to leave London for the sake of his health for long periods of time. And yet he would confess in the midst of all that busyness, in the midst of all his toil and his labor, 
He knew true, real rest for his soul. And so in his final public sermon on the 7th of June, 1891, he closed with these words. Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything gracious, generous, kind, tender, yea, lavish, and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but him, nothing from him but love. And I will be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below, if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus, even this day. Well, come to him, he says, and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a world that is full of restlessness, full of toil and labor that leads to nothing, we thank you that we have a promise of rest for our souls. Thank you that all that was long promised and foretold through the pages of Scripture, thank you that all your promises find their yes and amen in Christ, that he is the one who truly, really can give us rest. And so we pray that you would help us to come to him, to find restoration of our lives, to find reconciliation with you, and to be all that you have called us to be through him. Help us, we pray now, to turn from whatever would hinder us and to come to Jesus and find rest for our souls, we pray in his name. Amen.